You're listening to Vet Candy. Hello and welcome to this episode of Vet Candy IRL and I'm your host, Shannon Gregoire. So we all know that health and diet and, you know, fad diets and all this, you know, weight loss and what's healthiest and all these crazy things are always scouring the internet and you never really know what is right or what is healthy. And one of the big ones recently that has been all over the news in human medicine is a vegan diet. And personally, I am a vegan, I would say 98% of the time, because every once in a while, I'll treat myself to a piece of salmon, but uh, without the dairy. So 98% of the time, I follow a vegan diet, because for me, it just makes me feel better. And I don't don't know if you could say lighter, but (laughs) physically, I guess, yes. But just in general, it makes me feel better after I eat. So I brought someone on the show today to explain to you guys about potential vegan diets for animals and how it could lead to healthier, longer lives for our pets and with less um, disease incidents as we can see in people. So please help me welcome Dr. Andrew Knight. Hi, how you doing? I'm good. How are you? I'm all right. Thank you. So tell us a little bit about your background and where you've taught, where you're teaching and what your area of expertise is. Sure. So um, I practice small animal veterinary medicine, mostly around London for about a decade. And then I was recruited to go and teach at our Ross Vet School in the Caribbean um, from 2013 to 14. Had all sorts of amazing adventures out there. Saw a lot of sea turtles and, and saw other wonderful things. And then I had the opportunity to go to University of Winchester, one hour south of London, and set up a new centre for animal welfare. It's, it's not a veterinary school, but they were very interested to have a centre for animal welfare. So I'm now a veterinary professor of animal welfare. I'm a veterinary specialist in animal welfare, accredited in um, the US, the UK, Europe and New Zealand. So that's my area of expertise these days. Uh, I, I run an entirely distance learning master's program in animal welfare and behaviour, which covers all the things that specialists need to know to become vet specialists in uh, the US or Europe. I just thought I would throw that in. Thank you. Oh, yeah, absolutely. That's really interesting. So I guess it's popular more so in the UK than the US right now, but tell us a little bit about how you kind of got into vegan diets for dogs and how to make that commercially sound. Yeah, sure. There's been increasing interest in the health and well-being of of cats and dogs. We know they're living longer, but they're also having problems, dental problems, uh, problems of mobility, uh, being overweight, various sorts of uh, cancers, seizures, tumours. They seem to be at rates that perhaps are higher than we would expect, I think. So there is increasing concern about health and well-being. This is part of a long-term societal uh, increased interest in this general topic for people as well. We're increasingly concerned about our own health and fitness uh, compared to 10 or 20 or 30 years ago. We're concerned about this for our companion animals. And on top of that, people are concerned about environmental footprints. We're very concerned about our own footprints. We're increasing worries about climate change and biodiversity loss and so on. People have recently started to explore the dietary ecological paw prints of pets. One of the first key studies in this area was by University of California, Berkeley in 2017. 
And they looked at uh, the pet food sector in the US and found that 25 to 30% of the environmental impacts of the livestock sector in terms of land use, water use, fossil fuels, pesticides, fertilizers, greenhouse gases were actually attributable to pet food. So that's pretty amazing, to be honest. We know that the livestock sector alone um, globally contributes about 20% of all greenhouse gases. That's from the most recent studies in Nature Food Journal 2022. So that's a lot. It's not the biggest contributor of greenhouse gases, but it's a major one globally. Yeah, so if Ockham was correct and a quarter of that was due to pet food, we'd be looking at up to 5% of all greenhouse gases globally just due to pet food. So think about that. that that's amazing. We know that the entire transportation sector, all the planes, buses, cars and everything in the world is about 13.5%. And we know there's been a lot of focus on the need to travel in more environmentally friendly ways. Now, if the pet food sector is, is up to 5%, now maybe it's a bit lower than that. I, I personally think it's probably more like 2 to 3 but even so, no, hardly anyone's actually focused on this uh, at all so far. So to me, this was a, a hugely interesting area. People are increasingly concerned about dietary ecological paw prints and health and well-being of their companion animals, even of livestock animals being raised uh, for the food system. So people are, are looking at alternatives. So alternatives are being developed, and they include vegan, vegetarian, laboratory-grown meat, insects, yeast, fungi, seaweed, these are all being developed rapidly. By far the most developed is vegan pet food. The sector globally was already worth, well, it's, it's expected to be worth $16 billion by 2028, currently growing about 7% per year. So it's growing very fast, being driven by the interests of really large numbers of consumers who are concerned about these issues. And consequently, pet food companies are, are recognising there's a market there and they're piling into this space and the market's growing really fast. And that's that's the state of play before all this new evidence is coming on stream that myself and colleagues are producing at the moment. So once our large-scale studies are all published, I expect it's going to grow even faster still. Yeah, it's super interesting because you see a lot of trends in human either health or medicine or any human trend kind of overflows into pet trends. You know, you had that that grain-free diet trend that now every company that has grain-free is furiously backpedaling and adding grains back in because of those studies that came out about heart disease and dogs and things like that. So I'm just curious because there's been, you know, studies in humans about the blue zones and these, these cultures that emphasize more plant-based, very low processing of foods and trying to eat a very, I guess, whole food diet. I think I emphasize more than just that strictly vegan word, but like whole ingredient diet. So how are they then focusing that into dogs? Because humans and dogs are both omnivores. So how are they recognizing that maybe a fully plant-based diet or a minimal animal product diet is actually for long-term health better? For sure. Dogs are indeed omnivores and, you know, often people say they're carnivores, but of course they've been co-evolving with humans for 20 to 40,000 years and um, they've changed from ancestral wolves to animals that can uh, obtain nutritional benefit from scraps from hunter-gatherers initially. So that's scraps from our hunting parties or cooked starchy root vegetables who are discarded around campfires. And that's the way it was until 
about 10 to 12,000 years ago when agriculture began. So over time that the animals that were able to obtain nutritional benefit from a mixed sort of plant and meat-based diet did better than those who couldn't and dogs became omnivores. So they're very much omnivores today. People often sort of confuse what's fed today in meat-based pet food with the natural uh, feeding regime of an ancestral dog. But if you think about it, animals fed commercial meat-based pet food today eat all sorts of body parts from animals they would never naturally consume, such as, I suppose, cows, chickens, other animals with all sorts of unnatural additives packaged up into dry kibble or canned formulations and fed at predictable times each day, none of which really resembles a natural feeding regime. So really what they they need is not to be fed an ancestral feeding regime or even a modern very different feeding regime based on uh, modern livestock animals what, what they actually need is a certain set of nutrients obviously cats dogs guinea pigs bats humans we all have uh, different nutritional requirements the diets need to be formulated to supply all of the nutrients uh, species needs and perhaps the life stage as well uh, whether it be young old pregnant lactating exercising heavily or whatever and then there's two other requirements. If the diet's formulated to provide all the nutrients necessary from plant, mineral and synthetic sources, many of which also go into the meat-based pet foods today, then the other requirements are that it's sufficiently palatable so the animals are happy to eat the diet and also that it's really sufficiently bioavailable. That, that's primarily digestibles. Yeah, so they, they can be uh, absorbed into the body, uh, circulated in the bloodstream and reach the cells and be uh, transported across those cell membranes uh, to do some good. So those are the scientific requirements. There is no scientific requirement for meat or any other particular ingredient, providing we formulate diets that meet those uh, biological needs. There's no reason to expect the animals wouldn't thrive on those diets. And indeed, that's what the large-scale studies are now showing us. Okay. Yeah, because it's it's not like, oh, I need, you know, 150 grams of chicken in order to be able to function. It's you need the protein and the other nutrients found in that specific meat that you can also find in different plant sources. It just the way you have to find them is a little bit different and might have interesting ratios of different plants or a bigger variety of things in order to still get to the same point. But you can get from A to Z any number of ways as long as you still meet the specific requirements of the body. Absolutely. And you need companies to be working with nutritional experts, ideally veterinary nutritionists or other nutritional experts to formulate the diets to make sure that they are nutritionally complete and balanced and that the nutrients are adequately stable over time and can be digested and so on. So we wondered how did the companies producing vegan diets perform compared to those producing meat-based diets? So we studied that in another study, we found 29 companies producing the different diets and we looked at their manufacturing processes from every stage during initial design, what level of expertise were they using, ingredient sourcing, how did they ensure the quality of the incoming ingredients, the manufacturing itself, what steps were taken to ensure the nutritional soundness, whether they are oversupplied for nutrients, whether they monitored for degradation over time of, of our fragile nutrients, what uh, storage protocols were they using, shipping, handling, information provided to retailers and consumers all that stuff. So we studied that in great detail. We found that the companies producing the meat-based pet foods and, and the plant-based pet foods, both of them were doing pretty well at most stages. Um, there were small areas in which they could all improve. The plant-based ones were slightly better overall than the meat-based ones. And we thought that was maybe because they're more concerned about getting it right, because these are much newer diets. 
and they're more controversial. So maybe they were taking extra care. There was no general trend for them to be doing worse than the meat-based ones in, in these respects. So, you know, providing companies um, do what's necessary and, and fulfill the biological requirements of the animals, there's no reason to expect that those on vegan diets or indeed any other kind of diet uh, would not thrive. There is no scientific requirement for meat or anything else. There is a requirement for nutrients and people often mix those two things up. We'll be right back with more Vet Candy. Hey, this is Omar Lopez. And Eric Meyer. And we want you to check out our new podcast, Working Class, where two lawyers from opposite sides of the law discuss the hottest employment issues today from both the employee and the employer perspective. Check us out on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcasting platform. Yeah, and it's, well, the top two allergens in dogs are to, and food are to um, chicken and beef, which when I found that out in, in school, I was um, very surprised that, that those were the biggest offenders, I guess you could say. And that the things that people thought were quote unquote bad were, you know, actually not usually an issue for dogs experiencing food allergies. So a lot of times, you know, you have those hydrolyzed diets that dogs really, they probably think taste like dirt and don't want to eat them. And I don't blame them. It looks kind of gross too. <laughs> yeah, it's, so, it's great that you mentioned the chicken and beef. Uh, we found two clusters of health benefits that the vegan dogs seem to have. Large scale study of more than two and a half thousand dogs. And one seemed to be related to uh, my theory is dietary allergens because the vegan ones aren't being exposed to beef, pork, lamb, chicken allergens. And they were having lower rates of gastrointestinal problems and skin problems and ear problems. And they were looking substantially lower. And in some cases, they were significantly different. Some of the few benefits that were significantly better in the vegan animals. So I think they're all probably related. And I think uh, dietary allergens are the most obvious uh, underlying reason why the, the vegans would be doing better in this respect. They're not being exposed to those allergens. And another one is body weight. The vegans seem to be having less problems with mobility, being overweight and having body weight problems, and also other musculoskeletal disorders. I, I think that probably the most common dietary hazard out there today is probably overnutrition of uh, animals on and people <laughs> that's that's the effect yeah overnutrition and look there was, there was a really large study of more than 2,000 pet food diets from five u.s states a number of years ago and finding that uh, quite often the when the diets were tested they actually differed from the labeling claims usually by small amounts but occasionally by larger amounts and one of the most common problems seem to be too many calories. I think probably the most common dietary hazard is not actually the additives that people worry about so much, but rather excess calories. And that we are seeing that in, in our older cats and dogs in terms of body weight and mobility problems and sequelae, lipomas and so on. And, so, and it seemed to be the, the dogs on the vegan diets in our large scale study, more than two and a half thousand dogs had better outcomes with respect to body weight, mobility, musculoskeletal disorders, in all of those cases, and some of them were uh, statistically significantly different as well. So the vegans weren't just doing as well. They're actually doing better in certain respects than animals maintained on conventional meat-based diets. 
And do you think it has anything to do with how the meat is sourced or the frequency of the meat eaten? Because, you know, say 150, 200 years ago, whatever the pet food looked like back then looked nothing like what it does now, which is good and bad, but also the way we source those ingredients are a lot different in the way we farm them and the way they're processed. So I don't know if it's that also, like, is there any benefit to just a grass-fed dog food, like grass-fed beef or something like that, compared to a vegan diet or any kind of studies with different processing or raising of the food? Sure. The the big thing that's going on these days is that the so-called humanization of our companion animals and the increasing use of premium diets and also premium cuts of meat going into pet foods. And this is an issue globally. Globally, we've got two things going on. This is one of them. The other is increasing numbers of companion animals uh, around the world as developing nations such as China uh, find they've got more disposable income and widely adopt uh, pet ownership, actually. So we've got many more cats and dogs and they're eating diets which make a greater use of premium cuts of meat and a smaller use of byproducts, byproducts from the human food chain, the body parts of animals that are um, are less desirable, uh, poorer cuts of meat, or, or actually condemned as being unfit for human consumption as well. So pet food overall is getting better. Many more animals are eating pet food. This is kind of good for the pet food and for the animals that are consuming them, but it's bad for the environment. The environmental impacts of all of this pet food are increasing. There are, as I say, many more cats and dogs around the world, and they're eating they're making less use of byproducts and more use of livestock uh, being produced just to go into pet food, not as byproducts of the human food chain. So the ecological paw print is, is increasing substantially and becoming more and more of a big issue around the world. We also need, I think, to consider the animal welfare concerns of, of farmed animals, uh, intensively farmed or extensively farmed uh, animals around the world, and those are very significant too. So th- those are the big issues, I think, um, the extent to which byproducts are, are still being used, uh, which is falling, and the, the changing number of companion animals worldwide. Mm. And are the vegan diets, are they like extruded pellets or some sort of kibble-based formula, or is it actually better to have like one of those dog foods that kind of looks like you can see all the individual ingredients, or is it whichever is easier for the pet owner, or does any kind of different... I guess, look to it, affect bioavailability or health in any way? There are different formulations around. There are dry kibble, there are cans, pouches, and so on. Somebody in a particular region of the world may only have have access to one kind or or even nothing at the moment. But I would say that the pace of change in this area is so fast. I was being contacted by a company wanting to start up a new brand or product uh, once every three months, a couple of years ago. Nowadays, it's, it's every week. It's just ridiculous. I can't quite keep up with the level of interest uh, in this area. And that's not happening because pet food companies are just waking up one day and deciding they would like to to get into this. Actually, one or two of them kind of have said that because of their concern about corporate social responsibility and lowering their, their company's environmental footprint, they do want to get into it. But most of them are actually being driven by consumers. Actually, they recognize that there's a huge emerging market here. And as global concerns about climate change and biodiversity loss and the the footprint of the livestock sector only increase over time, and they're never going to get less, this is only going to get bigger. This isn't one of these fads that are going to appear and then disappear. 
this is the beginning of, of a huge wave that's going to grow and grow and grow. So companies are recognising that. They can see there's a huge marketplace coming and they're developing brands very rapidly. So if something's not available in somebody's area yet, chances are it will be uh, in the future. Mm-hmm. And when we talk about cats specifically, they're obligate carnivores. Like they're actually, they need meat in their diet. Are cats able to sustain a healthy lifestyle as a vegan? Because that, like dogs, I, I feel like I could see that a little bit easier than a cat. So um, that cats on a vegan diet kind of make me cringe a little. Yeah, look, that's a totally understandable reaction. Uh, many people have that. We're all taught in vet school that cats are obligate carnivals. And what that means that in the natural environment of the cat, and, and, and what is that, by the way, that was, uh, you know, cats have been domesticated around about 8,000 years, and their traditional role was to guard grain stores from rodents. So kind of the ancestral cat was in an environment where it wasn't subsisting on scraps from human campfires and cooked root vegetables. It was actually hunting rodents around our food stores in our early agricultural societies. So in their natural environments, they they didn't change metabolically in the way that dogs have, and they are not able to get um, very much nutritional benefit from the plant-based material that they might consume and we know that cats sometimes eat grass and they consume plant material in the gastrointestinal tracts of prey animals that that they hunt and kill so they all get some but they don't get very much nutritional benefit from that so they're obligate carnivals Uh, once again this is as with dogs this is of very little relevance to the domesticated house cat today or or house dog uh, today that eats a variety of body parts from animals they'd never naturally consume all sorts of unnatural additives in unnatural formulations at predictable times each day, that's very different to the natural feeding regime, uh, for example, of a cat that would actually hunt and kill a variety of mammals, birds, uh, insects, and whenever whenever it made a kill, it would consume as much as possible to prevent consumption by a competitor, and that would be followed by some uncertain period of hunger. So that was more like the the natural feeding regime, nothing to do with the um, feeding regime of a domesticated house cat today. But once again, this is this is all kind of historically of interest, but of very limited relevance to what cats or dogs need biologically. What they need is the full set of nutrients that, that that species requires in a formulation that's sufficiently palatable, they're happy to eat it, and sufficiently digestible so that they can get into the bloodstream, reach the cells and be absorbed. And once again, as, as with the vegan dog food uh, manufacturers today, working with uh, veterinary nutritionists, ideally trying to formulate these for cats as well. There's only been one, one large-scale study so far published of the um, health outcomes of cats on vegan diets versus meat-based diets, and that was published in BMC Veterinary Research, one of the world's top vet journals last year by researchers from Guelph Vet School in Canada. They looked at 1,087 cats, 187 of which were plant-based, which was their term for vegan in this study. And the plant-based cats or the vegan cats did better with respect to gastrointestinal problems, hepatic problems, and body weight problems. In all other health metrics, there were no significant differences between the uh, meat-based and the vegan cats. So there was also a study in 2006 published in Journal of the American Veterinary Medical Association of around about 80 cats split across meat-based and and most and plant-based, all of them, almost all of which were vegan there were no significant differences found really between those groups. There haven't been any other 
studies. I think I think actually there was one study a very long time ago, a really small number, um, cats fed on a plant-based diet that was formulated to be deficient in potassium, eventually showed signs of potassium deficiency. Amazing. So, so you know, no, a no-brainer there. Um, but that's it. So, you know, if you're interested in the evidence on this issue, it indicates that cats fed a nutritionally sound vegan diet, and I always say that because it does have to be formulated to be nutritionally sound, seem to do just as well, and in fact better in a, in a limited number of respects. We've found the same thing with another really large-scale study of cats, which is not yet published but is coming and will hopefully be published later this year. Uh, we found the same kind of health outcomes. So none of us should be a surprise to anyone that's following you know, the basic sort of nutritional principles, which is that if you supply all the nutrients an animal needs and maybe get rid of some of the dietary hazards that might have been there before, you would expect them to do just as well and possibly better than animals maintained on the mm. previous diet. And in that case, that was a meat-based diet. We'll be right back with more Vet Candy. I love my fur babies so much, but when they're stressed out, it makes me stressed out. Mine hate loud noises like thunderstorms and fireworks and Sometimes they just don't want to be left home alone. To keep my dogs calm in moments of stress like thunderstorms, fireworks, or even when I need to go out, I use Brave Paws, anxiety and stress support chewables for dogs. These plant-based chewables promote calm behavior with natural ingredients that have been clinically studied without causing drowsiness. Did I mention they're fast acting and sustainably sourced? How cool is that? Learn more at mybravepaws.com. And have there been any studies about differences in inflammation in pets with ones that are fed like a plant-based vegan diet versus a meat diet and how their bodies kind of change with the increase in fiber and their the health of their GI tract? Yeah, uh, well, you could say that, you know, yes, there was the, the study by Dot and colleagues from Guelph Vet School uh, last year in BMC Veterinary Research. And, one of the three health benefits that uh, was uh, evident, a statistically significant difference, is that cats on the vegan diets had less gastrointestinal problems than those on the meat-based diets. So this is all so exciting, of course, because it's kind of opposite to what many of us expected and what we certainly what has been the culture within the veterinary profession, which is that cats couldn't possibly do well on a vegan diet. And we think we were all taught that at vet school, but it, actually, if, if we think back a little further what what i was actually taught by uh, my professor of uh, nutritional biochemistry was that cats don't need meat they need nutrients they need specific nutrients not not any particular ingredient so actually that that's what the science is it's kind of obvious if you think about it and the culture of the veterinary profession has been operating under a major incorrect assumption which is that We've been mixing up our concepts. We've been confusing nutrition with ingredients. Of course, if we think about it, we realize that, yes, of course, the animals need a full set of nutrients. There's no biological requirement for any particular ingredient. Right. And what are kind of the, I guess, for someone who says, oh, I don't think my dog would eat a vegan diet or if they want to do a trial. And have you ever had someone whose pet did significantly worse on a vegan diet or is it because the transition from the 
Foods wasn't appropriate, um, or maybe the brand that they chose maybe wasn't one that was as nutritionally sound as it should have been. Or are, are there standards like the AFCOS kind of standards for vegan diets? Yeah, I'm really glad you asked the question um, about whether they sort of do do well on these diets, whether they, they enjoy these diets, because that's something that we studied as well in another really large-scale study that we published last year in one of the world's uh, top general open access science journals. So we looked at the um, behavioural signs of palatability when the animals were eating their different diets. And we went back through the previous literature and we found every indicator of palatability that had been described. And then we added some from our own experience as veterinarians. And we looked at the extent to which owners were reporting seeing these behaviours when animals were eating different foods. And for, for some indicators, there wasn't good evidence about whether they're a positive or a negative indicator of palatability. So we analysed the extent to which these behaviours co-varied with one another. We did that statistically and we were able to identify some new indicators of palatability which hadn't been identified before. So looking at those plus all the existing ones, the next thing we did was we looked at how they varied across the different diets. And once we did that, we had um, over 2,300 dogs in the study and then over 1,100 cats, so really large numbers. We found that there were some differences. Uh, animals fed raw meat diets seem to be enjoying their food uh, more than animals on conventional meat diets. So that's for the dogs. But the vegan diets didn't seem to be significantly different, no statistically significant difference across the board uh, between either the raw meat or the conventional meat diets. So I'm sure there are individual examples of, of animals out there that you know enjoy the vegan diets less or, or more. But um, when you look at really large numbers and you analyse it all statistically, there was no significant difference between how much the vegans seem to be uh, enjoying their food compared to the animals on the other diets. Of course, you know, some diets will be formulated uh, to be more palatable and less palatable, and that's a matter for the companies when they, they add in the flavourants and the colourants and, and, of course, the sense of smell is uh, super important for our cats and dogs as well. And they're, they're very practised at doing that. The major pet food companies, uh, with respect to the meat-based diets, have had many years of experience at getting that right. And so, so there will be those differences. But overall, on average, there isn't a statistically significant uh, difference. And just curious, because a lot of the things that I see on Facebook groups and other things are people ranting about clients who come in with their pets are on a raw diet, like a raw meat diet that makes my stomach churn on itself because of, I think of all the different like pathogens that can be in it <laughs> and in your house and everything. But aside from that, you know, some um, clients claim that, you know, their dog looks better. It really enjoys the food and it gets rid of allergies. I'm using air quotes when they feed raw diet. I don't really know if have there been studies on that as well, because it doesn't seem if they're making these home cooked meals, obviously I don't, you know, 99% of people probably aren't making something nutritionally sound. And that makes me nervous. Yeah. Oh, for sure. Look, there's been a sizable body of studies that have looked at um, raw meat diets and there are two main hazards. One is they're often not nutritionally sound. Uh, we know that they're going to lack uh, minerals and uh, certain vitamins that the animals need. So in themselves, they're often nutritionally unsound. We also know that people that are trying to add in supplements to homemade diets and try to formulate those at home usually get that wrong. Even experts really struggle uh, to get this, this 
it's right. So I don't actually recommend that people try this themselves at home. I think it's best left to a reputable pet food company that's been working with people like veterinary nutritionists and has put in good standards to formulate a product which is going to be reliably nutritionally complete. So that's the first thing, our nutritional flaws. The second thing, of course, is the pathogen hazards. And there's a really sizable body of studies that show that raw meat diets are associated with quite a range of pathogens, bacteria and other pathogens. And also, it's not just, of course, the animals that are affected. Unfortunately, it's the people in the households that also have higher rates of those pathogens. So they're either getting them from food when they're preparing them or else they're picking them up from the animals that are shedding them. Hence the need for really careful food preparation and handling protocols. But despite the publication of those, we know that studies are showing that there are much higher rates of those problems in those households. So in our study, we found that the health outcomes for the animals on the raw meat diets uh, at first glance appeared to be very good, actually. But taking a closer look, we realized that the average ages of the raw meat animals were much younger than the other groups, which gave them a health benefit. And there were some other things that seemed to be distorting the outcomes uh, as well for the raw meat group. And we know, of course, that those those hazards are there and, and hazards such as the pathogens are, are not uh, present normally in vegan diets. So we, we certainly don't recommend the uh, raw meat diets, um, despite what appeared to initially to be some fairly good uh, health outcomes mm. for them. And how would you, well, I guess if you had a, a client that brought in their pet and was dealing with what you suspected was probably a food allergy, but maybe the client's not very initially receptive to a change in diet conversation or even the, to try a vegan diet for their pet, what kind of points of conversation can you kind of bring into that client-doctor interaction to get their interest and their trust into switching foods and even switching to a vegan diet? Yeah, I would uh, start by explaining what the effects are on their animal. You know, this uh, redness of this, the skin in, in the belly and other areas of the animal, the pores, the ears, isn't something that's, that's natural. It is actually a response to the uh, food allergen and it is actually inflammation and if you feel it you know maybe put the client's hand there they might feel that it's the skin's warm to the touch they might notice that the animal's been been chewing its paws or scratching its ears and explain that you know this animal is actually in discomfort uh, because it's it's not just a one-off it's actually chronic and there are things we can do to try and make make this animal feel better and the, the thing is to try low allergy diets to see if that results in an improvement in fact the first vegan diets were formulated as low allergy diets, they were designed to provide uh, protein from novel sources that wouldn't trigger the allergic reactions that animals were experiencing. So they were vegan accidentally, not, not sort of by design because everyone was committed to a vegan diet. They were just trying to find novel sources of protein that would meet the animal's nutritional needs but not trigger uh, these allergic responses. So I would talk to them if, if they're those seem receptive about uh, vegan diets and you know many people are not yet at that point then I would say talk to them about the medical aspects and about the uh, suffering and, and well-being improvements that can be offered to their animal through by trialing a low allergy diet and if that diet happens to be vegan then maybe that's something to discuss at a later stage. Have you seen any allergies in the vegan diet, like any sort of plant-based proteins that are more, I guess, bioavailable or better accepted by dogs and cats? 
like digestibility wise and things like that? Yeah, I personally haven't. I mean, I'm sure that if you, you know, searched hard enough, you would eventually be able to find some animals that uh, reacted to, to vegan diets as well. But what we've seen in the large scale study that we did in dogs and also the other one uh, on cats, it was published by Guelph Vet School last year, uh, is that animals had lower rates, both cats and dogs, of gastrointestinal disorders. They were significantly different. Uh, we also saw other you know, dermatological signs in, in our dogs, skin and, and ears. These are all often triggered by dietary allergens. So I would expect that in general, it's your animals on nutritionally sound vegan diets are probably less likely to suffer from those problems. The internet is just full of accounts uh, of cats and dogs experiencing, uh, once they transition to vegan diets, things like improved coat condition, bleaker, glossier skin, resolution of miliary dermatitis. It's, it's really full of accounts of animals apparently experiencing these sorts of benefits. I say apparently because you know, this hasn't been systematically studied, the, but, but there are lots of those stories out there. The systematic studies of the large-scale studies that we published recently on dogs and the, the Canadians published uh, on cats, and th those did show those benefits. We'll be right back with more Vet Candy. Hey, hon, what you doing with your fun? Do flowers have best friends? I don't know. Hey, look. Whoa. Some answers can only be found in nature. Discover the unsearchable. Visit discovertheforest.org to find a trail near you. Brought to you by the United States Forest Service and the Ad Council. And when we talk about affordability and, and getting clients to try something new is, is a lot to do with cost. You know, are these new dog foods more expensive because of new and this new exciting thing to try, that's, or that's are they actually comparable or maybe it makes even me think, cheaper? Someone needs to study this. Someone needs to actually get out there and survey all the, the products and, and answer this question properly. No one's done that yet. I can't say that there's a, a range of these products. It's growing very, very fast at the moment. I'm not aware that there's any overall difference between the, the cost of vegan pet foods and meat-based pet foods. There is a general trend for meat-based pet foods to be using more premium cuts of meat and better quality ingredients these days. And the prices, I, I think, are going up. People are, in general, willing to pay a bit more and are willing, uh, are wanting higher standards of care for their, their cats and dogs these days. When we surveyed more than 4,000 pet guardians recently to find out what the most important factors they considered when choosing pet food, cost came in at number six. It didn't, didn't make it into a top five. The top five were pet health and well-being, dietary quality and nutritional soundness, palatability and environmental sustainability. So co cost came in below that. And that's, that's uh, also been matched by a survey of 3,600 uh, pet guardians from Guelph Vet School that was also published. So the, the final thing I guess I'd say is that if people are worried about cost, then I think they should probably be actively choosing nutritionally sound vegan diets because what we found is they're less likely to be spending money on medications, therapeutic diets, and also veterinary visits because their animals are healthier. And I think the cost, costs of those things are probably much more than the costs of diets, to be honest. Yeah, I know. I would like to see, I mean, eventually <clears throat> it would be nice to see studies on um, dogs that are fed vegan diets for their entire lifetime and to see like the changes in the incidence of disease, because we all know that there's 
been studies about having just a healthy weight can delay or even prevent some chronic diseases by years and increase lifespan by years. So it would be even more support for this diet once we can see, you know, especially in cats where we don't have a lot of pain control and arthritis is probably vastly underdiagnosed because cats don't like to tell us anything. <laughs> so to be able to push off those debilitative older animal chronic conditions with a vegan diet, I think would be the icing on the cake. I totally agree. Um, as soon as anyone's willing to give me about a, a million dollars or at least a few, a few hundred thousand dollars, which would be necessary to conduct a, you know, the lifetime feeding study, then I'll be very keen uh, to explore that with them. So I'm happy to uh, discuss that with any of your wealthy <laughs> listeners. But, but I, would, I would say, though, that the lifetime feeding study is a study that's never been expected of any other diets, you know, the meat-based diets, before we were willing to accept them. So applying that to the vegan diets, but not to the other would demonstrate a, a prejudice uh, against the vegan diets, which we've never applied to any other, other diets. Uh, it would be kind of like an unfair standard to expect those diets to meet. If we look at the, the studies that we do have today, let's look, for example, at dog food. We've got one large-scale study of more than 2,500 dogs. We've got two unpublished veterinary student master's theses involving blood tests and clinical examinations. We've got a published study of 12 sprint racing Siberian Huskies, all of those support nutritionally sound vegan or vegetarian diets being fed to dogs. The, the dogs all had equivalent or better health outcomes on those diets. On the other side of the fence, we've got uh, one published study of 12 dogs who, after being having no exercise for a prolonged period of time, were suddenly required to run it, I think it was 12 miles an hour, nonstop for three hours. And that was for about two weeks continuously and after going through that exercise regime the ones on the vegan diets developed anemia and that, that's interesting but it's also got no relevance to dogs in the real world today so if we look at all that we've got one study against vegan diets which is of really limited relevance to the real world and we've got and had 12 animals in total in it and we've got two published studies, one of which had more than two and a half thousand animals. And we've got two unpublished veterinary student master's theses, all of which support vegan diets. So if anyone's interested in having evidence-based position, it's clear what the evidence-based position is. It's, it supports the use of nutritionally sound vegan diets. And that doesn't mean we're certain about this issue. And often in, in veterinary practice, we're not certain about diagnoses or the best treatment option or likely response to treatment. But that doesn't mean we have the luxury of not making a decision. We have to work out the most likely outcomes and go ahead accordingly. And it's the same here. We don't have certainty, I think, but we do have a very high degree of scientific confidence because it makes sense biologically. And the study of two and a half thousand animals that we recently published included a range of objective data as well as uh, owner opinions. And because we had so many animals in it, it has given us a lot of confidence statistically in our results. So we might not have certainty, but we've got a high degree of scientific confidence in the results. And we've got a, a good sort of a biological mechanistic rationale for why those results might be occurring. So as I say, if people are interested in an evidence-based position, it has to be uh, supporting the use of nutritionally sound uh, vegan diet. Are there any brands that you like in particular or that you think people should 
look to, if they're looking to switch to a vegan diet, like ones that you think do a really good job or that you've published in your studies about um, ones that are making really nice quality diets, vegan diets for pets? I, I don't recommend any particular company or brand. I recommend that people check the labeling claims, make sure the diet is nutritionally uh, complete for the species and life stage. And also the company work with a reputable company that has good standards and is hopefully working with veterinary nutritionists or other nutritional experts to try and ensure the diet is nutritionally sound for uh, uh, cats or dogs. And Are there any specific own... labels that you look for other than I like having a veterinary nutritionist on staff, but any certain certifications that you specifically should look for? I mean, it varies with respect to different regions of the world, but generally you're looking for information that it's not intended as a treat or snack, but is intended as a complete diet. It's been formulated to be nutritionally complete and balanced, adheres to the nutritional guidelines published by AFCO or FEDIAF in the US or Europe, respectively. And also the company ought to be able to provide information about steps that it takes to ensure nutritional soundness and good quality of its diets. And the gold standard would be independent laboratory verification that the product is nutritionally sound. And if a company has no such information and won't answer any inquiries, then that's a red flag and people should go elsewhere. If on the other hand, they have good information about, about the steps that they're taking to ensure nutritional soundness and perhaps even can point to independent laboratory analysis of their product, then that's gold standard. That's, that's a good sign. So those are the things to look for. Well, maybe, well, my family doesn't have any dogs right now, but maybe I'll think about switching my cat to a vegan diet because he is getting older and I started him on supportive supplements for arthritis because I can see it, those minutiae of behavior starting to change so maybe we'll see a difference in in how he's how he's doing well if you do it might be associated with with body weight i've no idea about your cat's weight but in general that we i think we're seeing two benefits one is due to the dietary allergens and the other is due to a lower body weight less problems being overweight and accordingly uh, that helping mobility and musculoskeletal uh, disorders so if you did see benefits, maybe it would be because of that. Old cats are well known for being very stubborn, for changing their, their diets because of the flavorings that are added into commercial meat-based brands. It is possible to make the transition, but very gradually and over a period of time is often necessary. And that's also allows the intestinal flora and digestive enzymes time to transition as well and decreases the chance of gastrointestinal reactions uh, as well. So, so, so good, good luck if you, uh, if you if you tackle that. Thank you. Yeah, well, it's, are you personally a vegan as well? Yeah, look, I think that anyone that's looked seriously at the environmental footprint of our food production system, just how big that is globally, and the impacts of livestock sector and also the welfare of farmed animals has to be looking seriously at a plant-based diet for themselves. And, you know, I've, I've done those things and I, I have made that switch. So, so yeah, I went vegan some years ago for those sorts of reasons. Yep. And I love that it's um, a bigger variety of diets, a bigger variety of food in the diet. And um, like, I don't eat those, those vegan things that are in the human markets. That's not what I eat. I don't ever eat those fake meats and cheeses and all that crazy stuff. I try to stay away from <laughs> stuff that's more processed than cow meat. 
something that's processed to look and taste like me, it just freaks me out. <laughs> yeah, the health, healthiest oh. diets are, are apparently whole, whole, whole grain, fruit and vegetable based, unprocessed diets, except for tofu, which has been processed for thousands of years and seems to be totally fine. Uh, however, nowadays, there's all sorts of vegan junk food available, which didn't used to be there when I first did this many years ago. So back then you were kind of forced to be really healthy. These days, it's, it's less of a guarantee that just because you're vegan, you're going to have health benefits because there is so much delicious, highly processed stuff. You are probably going to still be healthier than someone who's not on a vegan diet, but not as healthy as you would have been if you'd been staying off all the vegan ice cream and cheeses and, and fake meat products and, and so on. So yeah, it depends uh, how healthy you want to be and how, how much you want to enjoy those, those luxuries, I suppose. Uh, I have one last question. What about like fermented foods? Because a lot, I've seen some studies with the benefits of, of the healthy bacteria, fermented foods, like things like kombucha, sauerkraut, and naturally, naturally fermented foods. Is there anything in the pet space with that yet? I haven't heard of anything in the pet space yet with respect to fermented food. Your question makes me think of kombucha, which I discovered when I was teaching at Ross Vet School and got somewhat addicted to out there. So I suppose if, if this is brought into the pet space, this would be one of those instances where the owners might be stealing from their pets instead of <laughs> instead of the <laughs> other way around. That's all I can say on that. Oh, oh gosh. Well, that would be very interesting if that ever happened. <laughs> We'll be right back with more Vet Candy. Hello, this is Caitlin Palmer. You probably know me as the desk wench. You know, the sweet TikTok receptionist who has to deal with the evil Karen Stevens. Well, if you like that, you are going to love my new podcast, Desk Wench Confessions. On my show, I have funny guests who tell me about their own Karens. Plus, we have contests, giveaways, and skits. Trust me, you are going to love it. Check it out on a podcast platform of your choice on Vet Candy Radio. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Knight, for joining me. I think we had a really good conversation and you answered a lot of my questions and had a really good discussion and I like the science behind it. Fantastic. Thank you very much. And uh, good luck to all your listeners out there. Uh, anyone toiling away, especially in veterinary practice, uh, where I used to be for so many years before going into academia. So best wishes to you all. Yes, thank you so much. And thank you to our listeners for listening today. Um, we will put links to some of the articles that Dr. Knight referenced and contact information if you'd like to ask him more questions or get in uh, touch with more of the studies or even participate um, in some of the research that's going on. And as always, thank you so much for listening to this episode of Vet Candy IRL. And I'm Shannon Gregoire. Vet Candy. Vet Candy. Vet Candy. It's Vet Candy Radio.